please take a seat. You might like to uh, open up again to 2 Kings, chapter 5. That will help you today. My name's Matt. If I haven't met you before, great to be with you. Why don't we pray as we begin? Heavenly Father, help us to know you more deeply so that we might trust you more completely. Amen. Amen. What are your expectations of God? What are your expectations of God? We all have expectations on different kinds of people. This morning, I want to ask us, what are our expectations of God? And particularly, what are our expectations on who can come to God? What are our expectations on what it takes to come to God? And what are our expectations on how you come to God? Um, A small personal example to help you with this. Graham helped me understand a little bit how expectations work when I first took this job here. He has this thing called the trust bucket. And the idea is, and we have this in all of our relationships, that the way you build trust with someone is with experience and time and getting to know them. It's the same with God. As you come to know what God is like, You can come to trust in him more. That's why I prayed, Lord, this morning, may we know you more deeply. May we know what you're like so that we can trust in you more completely. Because we all struggle with trusting God in, in some way or another, don't we? So my prayer today, in fact, the Bible is all about knowing God more so that you can trust him more deeply. The Bible and this story in particular, even from two kings, this obscure, strange story, it wants to help us check our expectations on God. It wants us to help us to get to know God better so that we can trust him more. What are your expectations of God? You know, the beauty of the Bible, the beauty of God revealing himself to us in the Bible is that you and I don't have to guess about what God is like. We don't have to guess about who can come to Him, what it takes to come to Him, or how you come to God. You can know with certainty what God is like. Because we have this. And even this story. In this story, we find ourselves in the book of Kings, 1 and 2 Kings. Unsurprisingly, it's a book about kings and a long line of kings going from King David, you might have heard of him, one of Israel's first and greatest kings, and his son, King Solomon. And it follows all the kings of God's people uh, through the split of God's kingdom into Israel and Judah, and then finally into the exile of Israel and Judah to where the, king, the kingdoms are just destroyed and taken over by other kings and kingdoms. The basic premise of kings is this. It's that if God's people will trust in him, if God's people will know and love him and, and make him the most important thing in their life, then God will bless them and God will be with them. You might know the story. It doesn't go too well. Let's say 90-something percent of the kings of Israel and Judah dramatically fail at this, dramatically fail at leading 
God's people to trust God and him only. The God of Israel is the last thing that these kings have on their mind. They worship other gods, they're morally corrupt, they do everything but know and trust God, but follow God. And so God sends prophets to his people, spokespeople, so that they might be warned about the consequences of their actions of rebelling against God. And the prophets do things and have stories like the one that we read here so that we might set our expectations right about who God is and what he's like. And this story in particular highlights that Israel had forgotten who their God is and how he works. They'd forgotten that they have something in him that you can't find anywhere else. And this story today, uh, I think, you know, in the next 15 minutes or so, I can't look at every little detail in the story, but I want to point out or highlight three things in the story that will help us check our expectations on who can come to God, on what it takes to come to God, and how you can come to God. It's a fascinating, perhaps to you right now, a strange story, but it's very revealing about our expectations on God. The first thing I want to highlight is who can come to God. The first thing to say is that God is interested and involved in everyone. What is striking about the opening verses of this story are the characters. Have a look with me. The first character is Naaman. We find out now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram or Syria. And alarm bells should start going off, especially if you know the Bible. If you don't, God has chosen a particular group of people and he's called them Israel. Naaman is a Syrian. He is not a part of Israel. Not only is Syria not a part of Israel, Syria is one of Israel's greatest enemy. And you might have noticed, Naaman's not just a part of Syria, he's the head of the army of Syria. This is the worst kind of outsider. Naaman's job was to give Israel a hard time. Naaman's job was to fight against God's people. And we are told from the very first sentence in this story that God is involved in Naaman's life. Can you imagine what the Israelite, one of God's people, would have thought as they were reading this story or hearing this story? We thought, God, you were our God and only our God. We thought we had this special thing going on with you. And you only worked for us. And here God is on the side of the outsider. I think we often limit God and we think that God can only be involved with certain people. Perhaps you're someone here this morning and you feel like you're outside the camp. You haven't grown up in Christianity, perhaps. You haven't come to church a lot in the past. Perhaps you've spent most of your life fighting against people who have faith or people who go to church or believe in a particular God. Perhaps you have your own religion or your own beliefs. God's not just the God of the Christians, the God of Israel. God is the God of everyone. Perhaps you're someone here at St. Stephen's 
Uh, and we can all fall into this trap of determining for God who can be in, who God can save. Be it a, a friend, a family member, or a colleague. We often think, you know what, they've got their own values, their own beliefs, they're doing all right in life. Or maybe we even think, you know what, they're a little bit too far for God to reach. Perhaps we think they've morally gone too far. Some of us, I mean, we all have a little moral compass that tells us something like, it's the righteous who should receive the reward. The Bible says, God desires that none should perish but everyone come to repentance. Secondly, there's a young girl in this story. Uh, and I, I think I'm going to continue. There's more of this story that we didn't get to read. And I think I'll continue that next week. But let me just point out something about her. This is a, a young girl who has gone through possibly one of the most traumatic experiences ever. At some point in her childhood, she was at home with mum and dad, brothers and sisters, playing, eating, sleeping, who knows, and her town was invaded, her home was overrun, and she was stolen and became captive to a, another family. And not just any family, but the very man who would have been responsible for that raid on that town. That's a difficult situation. Nothing in her life is fair or easy, fun. But the story goes that this young girl is a part of the story of this great man finding God. I think this, this story is, is shifting our expectations, isn't it? Who, who can be involved? Who can come to God? Who can God use? God can use an outsider. God can take an outsider. God can be involved in an outsider's life. God can use a little girl who's gone through a traumatic experience. So who can come to God? Everyone can come to God. The second thing to highlight is what it takes to come to God. What's it take to come to Him? You may notice here as well, right at the beginning, that Naaman is the kind of guy who has everything, including a skin disease. It's the, a tragic note to a, an end of all these great things about him, isn't it? He's got power and prestige. He's got reputation. He's considered highly favored. He's got great ability and skill. He's a valiant soldier. And yet he has leprosy. Now this is so sad at first, you know. We read this and this is the obstacle, isn't it? But I think as the story goes on, we find out something even sadder. And that is that Naaman nearly misses his opportunity for healing. His fatal flaw is not his sickness, but his pride. This is a great hero narrative, isn't it? We have in a hero narrative, you've got the hero, you've got their obstacle that they're facing, then you have a word from an oracle, you know, go here, do this, do that. And then you've got this person who sets off on this great adventure to overcome their obstacle. And Naaman takes everything that he has with him. He takes his power and his prestige. He takes his connections. He takes his wealth even. But each of them fail, don't they? 
First, he uses his political connections. It says his king, Naaman's king, the king of Syria, sends a letter to Israel's king, expecting that's how Naaman is going to get his cure. And it says, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? His connections don't get him anywhere. Second, he takes his power or his prestige, the kind of person that he is, to the prophet Elisha. In verse 9 we read, So Naaman went with his horses and with his chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Naaman is expecting an audience with the prophet based on the kind of person that he is. But he doesn't get past Elisha's front door. At each of these moments, I think we should be seeing here some clues that we've got to check our expectations on what it takes to come to God. Perhaps God's helping us see that we've got that expectation wrong. You can't use what you have or the kind of person that you are to come to God. Naaman's fatal flaw is not his illness. It's his pride. He thinks he's got what it takes to come to God. He thinks he's the right kind of person with the right kind of stuff. But he will miss his cure. He will miss his experience with God if he doesn't humble himself. Naaman needs to recognize that he has a need that nothing else, nothing that he has can fix and that no one else can solve. Someone once said, a Christian theologian once said, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But most people won't acknowledge that they have need and that they have nothing. What's it take to come to God? I think it takes nothing to come to God. It takes recognizing that you have a need. It takes humbling yourself and going, actually, I'm not self-sufficient. Finally, our third point is, how do you come to God? How do you come to God? What is... What's the way to God? In uh, chapter 5, verse 10, you can read with me, Elijah sent a messenger to Naaman saying, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Verse 11, But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman thought he knew a better way. Uh, Naaman was thinking, I know these rivers that come from mountains that are snow-capped. They're icy rivers, but they're very, very clean rivers. They're better rivers than the Jordan River. But there's... A reason that Elisha tells Naaman to go and wash in the Jordan River. It's very significant. Not because the Jordan River is a magical river, but because this river is associated with a particular God and a particular people. It's 
associated with Israel and with Israel's God. It's part of Israel's story. God rescued Israel, these people, from slavery in Egypt. And he promised to put them in a a land where he would bless them and he would be with them. But to get there, they had to cross through the Jordan River. It was God's people, Israel, where God dwelt. It's among God's church today where he dwells. I think we often think, or maybe our friends think, that we can find our own way to God. Maybe it's in a mysticism, a vague mysticism, or meditation, or maybe it's through spiritual pursuits of some sort. You know, the kind of idea that all roads lead to one God, or that all rivers flow from the same mountain. Not true. To come to God, you have to come his way. You've got to go through the Jordan. You've got to come through Jesus. And that's our last, that's, that's where I'm going to finish today. How do you come to God? Well, we know how you don't come to God. You don't find your own way. You've got to go his way. But how does that work? How do you come to God? Naaman didn't just think he knew a better way, but Naaman knew, Naaman thought he could come to God on his own terms or in his own strength. We're told at the beginning that Naaman is a valiant soldier. And then in verse 13, this idea is brought up again. Naaman's servants go to him because he's angry, he's gone off. And they say, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, just wash and be cleansed. The point here is that the prophet is telling Naaman to do nothing or to do very little. That's strange when you think about this hero's narrative, the hero, the obstacle, him going on his adventure to do that great thing. The thing missing in this great hero's story is that great struggle, his great achievement, him doing something to knock that obstacle over. All Naaman has to do is what? Is wash. And he thinks, this is ridiculous. I didn't come here just to be told to wash. It's interesting how we have that idea, isn't it? That if something's quite simple, can't be the right way of going about it. If something's complex, oh, that, that must be a better way. Naaman thought there must be something harder. There must be something I can do within my own steam. But this is the message God wants us to hear. This is the expectation that God wants us to check. Christians and and those who don't believe yet, the message God wants us to know is that God works by grace. God works by grace. It's unmerited favor. Something you can't earn. You and I could never achieve God's salvation because God's standards are too high. Our problem is too deep, too hard for us ourselves to overcome. But there is one who did. There was a great battle. And that was when Jesus died upon the cross for us. 
See, Christianity is different to every other religion, every other spiritual pursuit on this point exactly. It's not about you. It's not about what you have or who you are. It's not about you doing the big thing. It's about, you. It's about us doing the small thing. It's about us letting something else wash over us. It's about receiving God's gift to us in Jesus. I started by asking you, what are your expectations of God? You know, who do you think can come to him? What do you think it takes? How do you think you get there? And most of the time when, when we talk about expectations, people will say, the way not to get hurt, the way not to get angry is to lower your expectations, isn't it? Here it's the opposite. I'm not telling you to lower your expectations of God. It's quite the opposite. You couldn't have expected better. Look what God's done for you. You can have an experience with God as a gift from God. You might be thinking, well, I've already crossed the Jordan. I've already come to Jesus. I know that. Uh, there's two things that I think this can still, this still resonates for the Christian. And that, that is this. Firstly, I think often we take the, the moral high ground and we think, you know, I, well, firstly, we've already examined that, but I, you know, I know who can come to God, and it's these kind of people. But the other thing we do is often in our struggles, our day-to-day struggles in life, we still rely on ourselves rather than going to God. Or we still think that we should have a hearing from God because we've done the right things. Israel needed to remember that this was their story. Naaman's story is their story, and I think we need to remember Naaman's story is our story too. We were enemies, and it was only because God got involved in our lives that we can have a relationship with him and come to him. I'm going to leave it there. Why don't we pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, would you help us to check our expectations at the door as we, as we come to you today and this week? Would you help us rethink who can come to you, that everyone can come to you? Would you help us rethink what it takes to come to you? Every time we're tempted to think, I can come to God on my own steam, may we remember all we need is nothing. And Lord, may we remember that we come to you each and every day at the beginning and at every moment along by your grace through Jesus. Amen.